Hey, you guys, I am so excited to be kind of back with you. I can't wait till we're all back here together. Um, wanted to just um, follow up what, with what Courtney and Renee were just talking about with a couple of other things I, I would love for you to lean into with us during this time of separation. Um, first is that Family 15 that we're doing on, on Wednesday night, 7 to 7.15. Dave did such a great job of that. That'll be live again on Facebook this week. Gather with your family there. And then we started a new thing on Thursday night. Janine Jansen is leading an a, um, online Zoom prayer group that starts Thursday at 8. I was part of that this week, and we had like two pages of Zoom things going on. But that many people were on it. Over 30 folks were, were on there. And you don't have to pray out loud. You could just join us and and just listen and pray. Love for you to do that. If you're interested, go to mhcc.life and you'll see a, a link there that you can get yourself uh, on the email distribution list and you'll get a code for that meeting coming up on Thursday. Now, two other things that are really important. At this point, it looks fairly obvious that we're not going to be able to be together on Good Friday and Easter. And that is a major bummer. Um, that is the great weekend of our faith. Um, that is the holiest weekend on our church calendar. So what we're trying to do is figure out ways that we can creatively be together as best as we can in this kind of online era we find ourselves in. So here's what we're going to do. On Friday night, we're going to have a live Facebook event, Good Friday, where you're going to go live into my living room. I'm inviting you to my house for dinner, kind of, because I also want you to host a dinner at your house for your family if you live alone, for you. And we're going to join around our tables at 7 o'clock. And what we're going to examine is really what's behind um, what many of us know as the, the communion. Maybe if you come from a different faith background, you've heard it referred to as the Eucharist. The communion is really a reflection on Jesus's last supper, which was a Passover meal. Jesus was celebrating a Passover Seder with his disciples. And so what we're going to do is we are going to examine that meal. We're going to eat that meal together. And so we'll be sending out to you guys a list of ingredients. We'll give you about a week and a half to assemble the things. Nothing crazy. We're going to have some fun together. And we're going to look at a traditional Seder meal, the one Jesus was enjoying that evening, the evening he was betrayed. And what we're going to do is we're going to trace the story of Christ through the elements in that, that Last Supper meal, in that Passover Seder. So we'll get you the ingredients for that out. We're going to gather Good Friday at 7 o'clock, and that's going to be a great time. We're going to have some, you know, some. if you've ever been to a Passover Seder, there's some fun things for the kids to be involved in, and that'll be a great night. And then Easter Sunday, we want it to be participatory too. So you're going to be hearing from me in the coming day or two with a special request, a thing or two we would like you to do and then send to us via email so that we can be all together in a sense on that Easter Sunday and share the story and the hope of Christ's resurrection. So be watching for that in the coming couple of days. All right, I, I, I have something I want to share with you that's been in my heart. And, and it started to grow because I've been maybe like you, watching too much news. I've, kind of, I've got kind of a love-hate relationship with what's going on on the news right now. It's kind of the proverbial car accident that you don't want to look at, but yet you can't look away. And as I've watched it, guys, over the last two, three weeks, there is a pattern that is emerging. And once you see the pattern, you start to see it clearly 
everywhere, in, in all of the news coverage, I don't care what angle you're coming at the story from, and it's a shame that there are angles related to this story. But it seems like, to me, that most of the questions that are being asked are not focused on the virus and what will happen. Most of the questions that everybody seems to be asking, most of the questions that everybody seems to be answering, are all related to the virus and what did happen. Where did it come from? Whose fault is it? Who screwed this all up? Walk with me through this, right? I mean, in a sense, first, it, it's not just a virus. The virus came from China. It's China's fault. And then it was, well, it, it's not this administration's fault. It was the prior administration's fault. And then you have all of the governors. The governors are all saying, well, it's not the state's fault. It's the federal government's fault. Over and over, the same questions. Why aren't there enough masks? Why aren't there enough ventilators? Why aren't, whose fault is it? Why aren't there enough ICU beds? Why isn't there enough protective gear? Why didn't GM start producing ventilators sooner? Why didn't we take this more serious earlier? Watch with me this week. You'll be amazed at how much time is spent here. There's a worldwide pandemic going on, but it looks like our priority somehow is not to look forward, but to look back. We ask why, but as I've watched this go on and on, I'm not sure the question is really why. I think the question seems more like who? Whose fault is it? Who's to blame? Now, in my house this week, maybe like in your house, things have started to become real. Last week, the week prior, that week was full of mourning, but it was the mourning of, of, of things that were lost. I, I know I literally wept when my son Caleb, he's worked so hard to graduate um, in four years, and, and he did some Division I wrestling, and he traveled abroad, and he had to make up a lot of credits. He's worked so hard, and we, we just couldn't wait to go to Virginia Tech and be in the stadium and, and watch him graduate. And we got a letter saying that that wasn't going to happen, and that was tough. But this week, this week's things started to change. This week, people that I, I know, people that I love, people that I care about, this week they started to test positive. This week, some friends that I have, some friends that are part of our community here at Menham Hills, they lost people to this disease. And unfortunately, my guess is that in the, in the next couple of weeks, this storm is going to continue to grow, and it's going to impact my family and your family. And, and here's what's going to happen. As it does, inevitably, we're going to begin to ask the same question. Why? Why, God? I mean, think about it, right? I've already started to ask some of them. Uh, why, God, why New York City and not Chicago? Why, God, New Jersey and not Pennsylvania? Why my job and not his job? Why my family and not their family? Why me and not him? Dark days, difficult times, they recycled that most ancient of questions, this simple two words, why, God, why? 
what I want you to know is how we answer that question, it's always been important, but guys, I want you to know it is more important now than ever. Now, asking God to explain himself, it has nothing to do with a lack of faith. It has a lot actually to do with being human. When you ask that question, you're joining the biblical chorus. I remember when my kids were young, over and over again, why daddy, why daddy, why daddy, why daddy, why daddy? And eventually I would say, because I'm your father, I love you, I know what's best, and I said so. Actually, I I can't help but wonder if there's something for us to be learned just in that. But see, as God's children, we've been asking him why for centuries, It was Gideon, the Old Testament prophet, who asked, if the Lord is with us, why? Why has all this happened? It was Job in all of his loss and distress. He said, though I cry violence, I I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. The psalmist, and this is all over the 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 book of Psalms, the psalmist screamed, awake, Lord. Not unlike the disciples in the boat with Jesus. Awake, Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Jeremiah, another Old Testament prophet, questioned, why? Why? Why, God? Why are you like a man taken by surprise? Why are you like a warrior powerless to save? And before you get too crazy with going, well, maybe it's blasphemous to ask that question. See, it was Jesus who who we believe was fully God, but also fully human. It was Jesus who said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why, God? I, I, I want to share a couple of thoughts. First, here, the truth is that we live on a, a broken planet, and, and what's happening here most of the time displeases God as much as it displeases us. Jesus, if you recall, asked us to pray uh, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven Clearly, that prayer remains unanswered. There's a theological answer to all of this. We live in a broken, sin-stained world, and that's true, and, and, and bad stuff happens to good people. But the reality is when this storm becomes personal this week, that answer just seems to ring a little bit. It might be true. It is true, but, but it rings a little cold. It's not all that comforting. Jesus, who in his humanity and in his pain asked that same eternal question, why? Jesus was asked this age-old question again and again, which goes to show you even when you know the answer in pain, you're still free to ask the question. But what I want to look at with you briefly this morning is, is, is the answer Jesus knew and gave to the question. Because here's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid that in the coming weeks, when things get closer to home, you might answer it incorrectly to yourself, to your kids, to our church, to this town. You know, why do I think that? Because the truth is that people have been answering that question incorrectly forever. When we ask the question why, it often becomes just like it is on the news day after day. The question is not why, God. It's like, who's to blame, God? 
Luke, he was a highly educated man. Uh, theologians believe him to have been a, a physician. Luke set out to write an account of Jesus's. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples, but he set out to write an account of Jesus' ministry. Here's what he, he wrote when he started his, his book. He said, I, I myself have carefully investigated everything regarding Jesus from the beginning, and I decided to write an orderly account. Why? So, he's doing this. This is here so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Well, in this orderly account, guess what comes up? Why, God? Apparently, there had been a recent tragedy in Jerusalem, kind of like what's happening to us. Some people came to Jesus, and they told him what had gone on. Uh, it was a story about a group of Galileans who had come to the temple in Jerusalem to, to sacrifice, and Pontius Pilate, once they were there, slaughtered them, probably due to some public disturbances the Galileans were believed to have caused. And so Luke records this interaction. He says, now there were present at that time there was some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, so they asked him a question. We don't know what the question is. I think we do. Jesus answered, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I'm telling you, no. But unless, he says, unless you repent, you too will perish. And then, interestingly enough, Jesus actually brings up another local tragedy, some more suffering that people had, had seen or heard about. This one was regarding a local tower that had apparently fallen. He goes on, he says, or, or, or those 18 men who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. You guys, do, do you think they were more guilty than all of the others that were living in Jerusalem that the tower didn't fall on? I'm telling you, no. Don't miss the exclamation point. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. See, without, without even asking the question, Jesus answers the why. Do you think that what happened to the Galileans, do you think that happened because they did something to deserve it? Do you think that that tower fell on them because they were worse than the people that it missed? Now, Luke doesn't record their answers. We see it as a rhetorical question, but I think we know the answer. The answer is, yeah, that's what I think. That's the way I think. Here's what I think. I think when bad things happen, we got to look for someone to blame. When bad things happen, there's a reason for it. There was an effect, so there must be a cause. Somebody did something to deserve what happened here. Now, you might dismiss that as the ancients, but it's not. See, God's people have been answering this question in the wrong way for a long time. Philip Yancey points out when the Indonesian tsunami that killed a quarter of a million people on a sunny day in 2004, he writes that geologists blamed it on the rupture of an undersea megathrust on the seafloor triggering the giant wave. But unfortunately, some televangelists created it instead to God's wrath against pagan nations in that region that had been persecuting Christians. See, along the same line, one Christian leader traced the cause of the 2011 tsunami in Japan. Here's, here's what, 
was written, Japan is under, they, let me back up. At the same, along the same line, one Christian leader traced the cause of the 2011 tsunami to the fact that, quote, Japan is under control of the sun goddess. It's their fault. God's just doing what God does. That's what God does, you know. At least that's what they were telling people. See, when terrorists killed 3,000 people by crashing airplanes into the World Trade Center, something that many of us are very familiar with, there was a prominent fundamentalist who blamed it on, quote, the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who were all actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle. You see, it's their fault. God is angry, and he's taking it out on them. There's There's the effect. Let's search for the cause. Let's look back. But guys, I, have, I just want to, I want to share with you, the teaching on Jesus is, uh, on this topic is clear. First of all, let me just say this. We're all in the same boat. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And unless all of us repent, just like Jesus said, unless all of us repent, that's, just, that's a religious word. What that means is unless all of us change our mind, unless all of us change the direction in which we're going, Unless all of us turn away, in a sense, from ourselves and towards Jesus and begin to give our lives to Him and follow Him, we're all going to perish. We're all in the same boat, but thanks be to God that through Christ Jesus, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, all of us. When the storm gets to your home this week, when the phone call comes, when the test results are returned, when the check doesn't come, I need you to know this. God is not extracting revenge on you. This is not because of something you did. Now, that's not always true, right? A lot of times our suffering can get traced back to our own actions or our own inactions. But when something like this comes along, I want you to know when you ask the question, and you will because you're human, what did I do to deserve this? Why, God? Why am I suffering, God? Am I to blame? You need to know the answer is no. You're not. Now, I, I need to tell you this before somebody else stands up and tells you something different. I don't want you to get the answer wrong as it regards you. And I don't want the church, I don't want our church to get the answer wrong when it comes to a world that, guys, for the first time in decades, the world is beginning to look to the church for an answer and for hope. We can't afford to get this wrong. Let me show you what I mean. John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, who walked with him, recorded, recorded this. John writes, as he went along, speaking of Jesus, he saw a, a man that had been blind from birth. He'd become a, kind of the town beggar. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, even Jesus' disciples, following God incarnate, Uh, listening to his teaching every day, they fall into this same mindset, cause and effect. If someone's suffering, if someone's in pain, it's got to be something that they did that caused it. God's just doing this to get back at them. You get what you deserve. Guys, do you know 
why it's so important that we get the question right, or get the answer right, why God? Because when we think cause and effect, do you know what that does to how we respond? What happens to my compassion for the blind man when I start to think that what he got is what he deserved? Can you feel that? See, Jesus does not think cause and effect. Here's what he says. Jesus answers their question. He says, to the question of who, who sinned, this man or, or his parents, Jesus goes, neither. I'm imagining the disciples just kind of looking at each other. What do you mean, neither? Somebody must have done something. Then why is he blind? Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, if you think about it, any other answer to that question, what would it have done if he had said this man or one of his mother or his father? Any other answer to that question shifts the attention away from the blind man and his suffering. It shifts away from the disciples any responsibility they might have for compassion. It shifts to someone else guilt and blame and shame. Well, I'm not too worried about him. He got what he deserved, or he got what his daddy deserved, and too bad for him, and I feel bad for him, but that's life, you know. That's what happens when we get the answer to the why question wrong. Then Jesus says something that I don't, I struggled to bring to you this morning, because I have to admit these words are, are at first blush, they are less than comforting which again, given the pandemic we're facing, given that many of us are going to deal with bad news in, in coming weeks, but be a straight shooter. I want to tell you what Jesus, Jesus answered, the why God question. Here's what he said. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, this is not an answer looking back. They wanted an answer looking back. Who's to blame? Who's to shame? Where can we land the gotcha moment? Jesus' answer to the why God question is not to look back and blame anyone, but it is to look forward with purpose. Let me be clear here. I want you to, 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 to hear this now. Jesus did not at least definitively say that God did this purposefully. It was God's desire that this man be born blind. Jesus did not say God's happy that this man is born blind. The reality is lots of bad stuff, happen on a, bad stuff happens on a broken planet. This, this, the way we live, this earth is not as God would have it. But Jesus says that in the brokenness and in the pain and the loss and the suffering that results, God will allow it to happen. So that the works of God, or another translation I like even better, says so that the power of God might be revealed in his life. Pain and suffering and loss, the why questions, should not relate, at least biblically, to backwards thinking and blame and shaming. The reality is that that kind of why question has been asked throughout the Scriptures, but the Bible is almost always silent Job, the unfortunate man who deserved suffering the least, but who got it the most, he kept asking the question, and he finally got his requested audience with God. 
who responds to Job in the longest recorded speech in all of Scripture from God. But oddly enough, in the longest recorded speech, in an attempt, Job kept asking why. Do you know what God did? After he gave him a tour of the natural world in this magnificent poetry, God never answered the question why. Frederick Buchner's words say that God doesn't explain to Job. He kind of explodes. He asks Job, Job, who do you think you are anyway? He says that to try to explain this kind of thing to Job would be like trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. God doesn't reveal his grand plan. What does he do, though? See, he reveals not answers, but he reveals purpose and power. You see, if you answer the question the wrong way, here's what happens. You begin to see God in heaven doling out punishment kind of randomly. You think it's our job then to go figure out who messed up, what I did to deserve this, what, what we could have done together to anger God. God doles out punishment for sin, all right, guys. That's true. But for those of us that have, that have put our faith in Christ Jesus... He doles it out on His Son once for all who would believe. If you want to see God correctly, you've got to see Jesus, who we believe to be the very God incarnate. Every time you wonder what God is like or how God thinks or why God, look at how Jesus lived. And so in suffering, do we ever see Jesus saying, to anybody that he came across that was suffering, you know, you deserve this. No. You see, in Jesus, every time we see a God that is on the side of the sufferer, we almost instinctively react to suffering by thinking that, well, we must have done something wrong. God's punishing us. There's an easy correction to that innate response. Simply follow Jesus through the Gospels and watch his interaction with a widow who lost her son or, or a Roman soldier whose servant had fallen ill. Never does he victim shame. Never does he philosophize about the cause. Always, without exception, Jesus responds with compassion and comfort and healing. God is on their side. God is on our side Guys, we've got to get the answer to this why God question right because when we do, you'll know this. God is on your side. Jesus said regarding the blind man that this happened so that the works of God, that the power of God might be revealed in him. And what if? I mean, what if? That's the answer to the question now. What if that's the answer to the why question today? Why, God, this pandemic? Why, God, my health? Why, God, New York City and not Chicago? Why, God, my 401K? So that the power of God might be revealed in you. So that the power of God might be revealed in you. See, don't don't look back looking for shame and blame and cause, but look forward with hope and purpose. Here's how Yancey put it. He said, Jesus knew suffering up close as a willing victim to our planet's brokenness. 
And when he ascended, he sent his followers into the world as the Father has sent me to be God's agents of comfort and healing. In a lovely phrase that is not easy to say, the Apostle Paul refers to, quote, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. That's forward thinking. That's the power of God displayed in your life. This is our stated mission in a world full of pain and suffering. That's how he works. That's how his power is displayed. And so one answer to a question that you might be asking, where is God when it hurts, is actually another question. Where is his church when it hurts? Yancey said, I've traveled 87 countries, most of them, in most of them. You can follow the the trail of Christian missionaries by the hospitals and the clinics and the orphanages they founded. He wrote a book called Fearfully and Wonderfully with a leprosy specialist, Dr. Paul Brand. Virtually every advance in the understanding and treatment of that disease came from Christian missionaries, not because they were the best physicians and scientists, but because they were the only ones willing to treat that misunderstood and dreaded disease. Following Jesus' example, they risked exposure by reaching out to the leprosy afflicted. Sociologist Rodney Stark, in his book Rise of Christianity, says the one reason that the church overcame the hostility that grew so rapidly within the Roman Empire traces back to how Christians responded to the pandemics of that day, which included the bubonic plague, smallpox. When infection spread... The Romans fled. Christians stayed behind to nurse and to feed not only their relatives, but their non-believing neighbors. The the comfort that they proffered, it drew others to the God of all comfort. What if the answer to why God isn't to look back and blame, but instead to look forward with purpose and power so that we could be a comfort to those in any trouble? with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. The comfort that God is not only for us, but that He's with us. The comfort that God is not distant, doling out punishment to an unwitting enemy, but that He is near and never closer than to those who are hurting and suffering and who are broken or in pain so that we could comfort folks with the truth of the resurrection of Christ that this virus and all of the death and the wreckage and destruction that it's causing is not the final word. Paul says, of course we mourn, but we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Guys, this week, I know the winds are going to get stronger. I know the waves are going to get higher. But don't look at those. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Remember the one that's in the boat with you is to be more feared than the circumstances that are around you. Don't look back and blame. Look forward with purpose and power. And so how do we respond? I'll close with this. This is really quite amazing. The 15th century theologian and catalyst of the Reformation, Martin Luther, he actually lived during a plague, the bubonic plague in Germany. Here's how he responded to the scourge of his day. He wrote, I shall ask God to mercifully protect us. That's good. But then he went on. He said, then I shall fumigate 
help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed. This is so fascinating, right? It's basically stay home. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he'll surely find me. And I have done what he's expected of me. And so I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. But if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely See, he concluded, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy, and it doesn't tempt God. Martin Luther demonstrated what Paul had written, the peace of God that transcends all understanding. May that anxiety-quieting spirit characterize you, us, now, it might seem unattainable in, in these plague-filled times until you remember that Paul actually wrote that from a Roman prison cell. And so I'm going to pray that over you as we close. Church, when the storm comes into your house this week, don't try to find the why in the, in the past. Look for the answer in the forward. And this week, may the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, parenthetically, turn off the news for a minute. And instead, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Whatever you've learned or you've received or you've heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Why, God? So that the power of God might be revealed in you. And the God of peace will be with you.